Around 1800, a national news, mag news magazine, a weekly called the Niles Register, noted that, quote, factory work was not for able-bodied men, but rather better done by little girls from six to 12 years old. And often it was. By 1820, children had begun to make up more than 40% of the mill employees in at least three New England states where mills were big business. Those who approved of this state of affairs implied that children who didn't bring in an income were lazy and wasteful, producing nothing towards their own maintenance. Employing children prevented, quote, the growth of a future dependent class, unquote. As the historian Michael Schumann notes, quote, the concern about idle youths did not appear to be one shared by the upper classes, unquote. Wealthy parents worked and saved for their children. Poor ones used their children to help the family bring in enough income to survive. And this backfired sometimes because employers preferred to hire children over their parents who had to be paid more. And so that little girl of six years old could end up the only earner for a family. It took decades of struggle to reverse this. State by state, legislatures would reluctantly limit child labor. For example, limiting a child's workday to 10 hours if they were under 12 years old. Reformers would succeed in, say, getting the work week shortened from 56 to 54 hours. And in response, mill owners would speed up the machines so that production would be unaffected. This, of course, only made the work more dangerous. Reformers tried to make it safer, and this, too, was the struggle of many years. So were a minimum wage, pensions, sick leave, vacation, and breaks to take care of biological needs, each one a hard-fought victory. Labor leaders and workers, not surprisingly, led the way, but some owners and industrialists made their mark too. Henry Ford and W.K. Kellogg of car and cereal fame, respectively, cut their work days, increased pay to make up for it, or more, and saw productivity increase, which nudged their competitors to be open to shorter hours for their workers as well. As Henry Ford reasoned, and I, I hate to uh, cite uh, positively such a notorious anti-Semite here on the eve of um, the Jewish high holidays, but uh, he was a mixed bag, Henry Ford. One of the good things he said, and a practical thing too, was that he wanted his workers to be able to afford his cars. And in fact, Companies like his helped to create an American middle class that could do just that, actually have their lives improved by the goods that they were helping to bring to market. So through leaders like this, pressure from organized workers and slowly, slowly legislation, the US American workplace became more humane. Not for all work sectors, but for many, conditions improved. The weekend grew from 
one or maybe one and a half days to two full days off. The work week shrank to 40 hours, with overtime being optional and paying extra. A minimum wage was established in 1938 and has been raised 22 times. Children received an education instead of earning their keep. The workplace became safer. For many proclaimers of the American dream, dating back to, to the, uh, the days of the colonies, the plan was for this progress to continue, giving us more leisure in a thriving economy. That's part of what they meant by quality of life, by a standard of living, not just enough money for our needs and our wants, but more leisure. In 1956, while running for re-election as vice president, Richard Nixon gave a campaign speech that led to the New York Times front page headline, Nixon foresees four-day work week, says GOP policies, Republican policies, assure fuller life for family. But in fact, since 1956, things have stalled and like a Model T run out of gas, began to roll backward downhill. For example, in 1970, the year the Occupational Safety, Safety and Health Agency, OSHA, was created in a bill signed by President Nixon, dangerous working conditions caused nearly 14,000 fatalities. That was in 1970. Thanks to OSHA, and other laws, that number came down to a low of 4,500 in 2009, in a bigger workforce as well. But that was 12 years ago, and the numbers have been creeping back up. Our hours are getting longer, not shorter like Nixon dreamed of and promised. That eight-hour day that Dolly Parton sang about in nine to five of 30 odd years ago, now seems quaint. Today, Nabisco workers, unionized no less, are on strike to end the practice at their factories of 16 hour days. The federal minimum wage froze in, 19, in 2009 at $7.15 an hour, but it's been even longer than that in inflation-adjusted dollars. In 2000, the minimum wage was back at the same level it was in 1950, and there it has remained. And the dreams of earlier reformers, the dreams of sufficient childcare, transportation, education, and healthcare to truly open all workplaces to those who have the skill and inclination to enter them, those dreams are still just dreams. That's where we've been. And then came COVID. Millions have had their jobs terminated or suspended. Either they simply could not work under sh shutdown conditions or their employers were so financially stressed that they cut back drastically and as we know, many times closed, not to reopen. And millions more people had to work in increasingly unsafe conditions because of COVID. And so 
Among the many upheavals that we have had over the last year and a half, we are experiencing what economists are calling the great resignation. People are resigning. They are leaving the workforce in unprecedented numbers. 11 million just this past April through June. Employers who used to get 100 applications for a position report that they're now getting one or two, and sorry, we're short-staffed signs are everywhere. Jobless benefits are about to be cut down to zero for many workers, so we will see what happens. But many workers have declared that they have no intention of going back to the conditions and pay that they had before. They speak of 80-hour weeks in restaurant kitchens. Employers who didn't provide safety training or equipment and let a whole line get sick with COVID rather than tell anyone that someone in the crew had tested positive. The bitterness runs both ways. Many employers perceive these former staff as just plain lazy, paid too much on unemployment to want to work. And it's true that some players in the great resignation calculate that it's just not that worth their time to go to work. But there's so much more going on. It's called the great resignation, but they're not resigned. Far from it. They used to be resigned to dead-end jobs and a drab future, but now they're not resigned. They see alternatives. Not only freedom from a workplace where they didn't feel they were being respected or valued, but these workers who are forming the great resignation speak of having more in their lives than work now. Time to walk in the woods. The mind space to develop a new interest. Days spent with their families, not just half hours snatched here and there, but like at bedtime, at the end of an exhausting day. They're talking about being more than just their jobs. And it's not just the people at the very top of the employment food chain having suddenly the opportunity to think, what kind of work do I want to do and what role do I want work to have in my life? There's a spaciousness now. This space could be a great moment for our country. Instead of being the country with the longest work weeks, shortest vacations, least health care in the industrialized world, we could take this moment to re-envision what work means in the United States. Not just for high-paid, white-collar, intellectual workers and creative workers, but for everybody. Here in the 21st century, we could restore the dreams that were ours in the early 20th century and farther back in the 19th and the 18th centuries when people dreamed of work having a more appropriate place in our lives. So what if we cleared the slate in our minds and started from scratch? There is work that has to be done to sustain a community, as Joe said. 
some of that work is attractive to some of us, some to others, and it will get done if it pays decently and if the conditions are good and if people are given the training and support they need. Okay, so that takes care of some of the work. For example, the New York Times recently interviewed a restaurant cook who went into the work because he loves to cook. He loves to cook for other people. He loves to cook for his family. But 80-hour weeks cooking on demand beat it out of him. Now he doesn't want to go back to cooking professionally. Maybe if he could work 40 hours or if him, his employer wanted to follow a trend and make that 32, he would be happy being a professional cook again. So that's work that somebody has an interest in. But then what do we do about the work that nobody wants to do? It's dangerous or boring or unpleasant or it destroys the body fast. If we cleared the slate and said, okay, there's some work that needs to get done, but there's no one yet to do it, how would we make sure that it got done? Well, how do you divide up your unpleasant chores at home? No cheating and paying somebody else outside the house to do them. You divide it up fairly, you take turns. For the worst cases where nobody wants to do this work, I don't know, uranium mining, you allot it by lottery, say? One way or another, if we were creating a fair system from scratch, we would make sure that no one had to do it every day for the rest of their lives. We would make sure that we all shared the burden because we all need the results. And instead, what we've done is arrange things so that nobody would do this work if they had a choice, and then the economy is arranged so that some people have no choice. I'm wondering, what if we, as people of deep principle, aligned the way we arrange work with our principles? What if we aligned work with our principles? And when I say we, I don't mean the workers primarily. I mean only the most fortunate, those with an unusual amount of leverage, have a lot of options. So this isn't for workers to do. And I don't mean how the employers align work. I mean, that's important. Some companies absolutely are greedy. They could pay their workers triple what they do, 10 times what they do right now without feeling the pinch. People like Jeff Bezos and the Walton family, their stocks go up and up. They get richer and richer, and owners and CEOs and stockholders get rich while workers lose ground. But many employers don't have that many choices either. Restaurants operating on a slim profit margin can't just increase their prices dramatically or increase their pay dramatically. Businesses that would like to treat their staff better often are competing with those who have no such principles. So we can't leave it only 
up to workers, and we can't leave it only up to employers. No, when I say it is we who will have to align the U.S. work world with our principles, I mean all of us. Those of us who make the laws, who vote in those who make the laws, who set the standards, who put in the floor and say, you simply cannot go any lower so that no one can undercut their competition by slashing wages to a starvation level or leaving the workplace a dangerous place to be. Previous generations have put in so many protections. They put in the minimum wage, and they limited child labor and created schools instead, and they capped hours at 40, and they created OSHA and worker protections, and they fought for unionization that would give workers bargaining power. But we have let all those things slide over the generations since. And we know that it can be done differently because we're not the only country in the world. And other countries are providing health care and shorter hours and longer parental and family leave and better conditions. And they, their businesses, their workers are thriving. So right now, things are a little different than they've been for a long time. They're a lot different. This is a rare moment when we have some leverage to say, you know, it hasn't been working. Not just the moral leverage, but the economic leverage. Everybody's feeling like this doesn't work. We can't find our workers. Our workers are saying, I can't go back to that kind of job and, and live the kind of life that is worth living, that I was promised in the American dream if I just worked hard. So are we going to give up this moment? Are we so resigned to the way things are as if they're permanent facts of nature? They're not. They're not laws of nature handed down by God. They are our laws. We made them for the advantage of some, and we can remake them for the advantage of us all as those of us who are committed to justice, equity, and compassion in human relations surely want to do. Resignation is not a neutral attitude. It's really not any different than apathy. It's really not any different than cynicism. And our commitment to justice, equity, and compassion demands that we be more than that. So let us be inspired by those who are re-examining work in this moment. Let us make the most of the fact that things have been so shaken up and that people are saying, surely there's something else we can put ahead of us instead of just going back to the way things were. It wasn't working. It was broken. And we know we can do better than this because we have done better, and people all around the world have done better. In honor of all our hard work, and all the work of all the people around us this Labor Day, let us summon our principles and all our energy and optimism 
and turn away from resignation and move us closer to the country we dream of inhabiting. <laughs>